of anxiety. On the complexity of the emotion of anxiety, in 1981, John Piper wrote this, Anxiety seems to be an intense desire for something accompanied by a fear of the consequence of not receiving it. Anxiety seems to be an intense desire. You really want something accompanied by a fear of the consequence of not receiving it. We intensely want to go about our daily business. We intensely want to come to the house of the Lord this morning. We intensely want to go to school and and we want to go to work and we want to shop and we want to order and we want Amazon packages delivered on time and all the things that go with just day-to-day life. We intensely desire for something. Anxiety comes when we want something and it's accompanied by a fear of the consequence of not receiving it. Now, there are many ways in which anxiety can be sinful. The Bible chronicles many of them. We could see it in Matthew chapter 6, Philippians chapter 4, just to name a few. Uh, I think of the parable of the soils and the sower, where one of the seed that is planted doesn't sprout up and grow in the faith because it's choked out by the anxieties of this life. Well, the exact same word anxiety is used in our focus passage today. And so it can't always be sinful to have anxiety. Zoom way in with me this morning to just one verse. 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 28. 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 28. That verse says the following. And apart from other things, there is the daily pressure on me, that is the Apostle Paul, Apart from other things, there's the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches, of his anxiety. So anxiety seems to be an intense desire for something accompanied by a fear of the consequence of not receiving it. Piper went on to muse on this subject almost 40 years ago. He said, it occurred to me since the Apostle Paul's command to rejoice always in Philippians flow from his concept of God as one who is powerful enough and good enough to work in all things for my good, like Romans 8, 28 says, then God should be perfectly happy in his being, free from all anguish and grief. But in fact, we find each member of the Godhead grieving over sin and the loss of human life. Consider Genesis 6, 6 that says, during the, days, during the evil days of Noah, the Lord was sorry he had made man on the earth and it grieved him in his heart. It grieved him in his heart. Consider how Jesus wept over Jerusalem's failure to know the time of her visitation, Luke chapter 19. And in Mark 3, it says that he looked down on his adversaries and it says he was grieved at the hardness of heart, at their hardness of heart. Consider the Apostle Paul in another another place in Ephesians 4.30, where it says, do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, intimating the Holy Spirit of God could be grieved, whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. So the whole Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, as well as here the Apostle Paul, appear to grieve over something, to have anxiety over something, to grieve over sin and the loss of man's righteousness and salvation. If we could account for how it is good for the Trinity to grieve over sin, then we could probably account for the legitimacy of the emotion of grief and anxiety, and particularly Paul's anxiety. And we could, we could account for it even in the form of this anxiety that's expressed in our passage today for all of the churches. So we're zooming in on this verse, chapter 11, verse 28, within our focal text of 2 Corinthians eleven sixteen 16 to 33. And it says, 
that apart from many other pressures, that Paul climatically crescendos his list of concerns that he's facing with anxiety for the churches. Seems like an odd place to put the accent mark. And we want to consider that today. Bear with my definition. Anxiety seems to be an intense desire for something accompanied by a fear of the consequence of not receiving it. Piper went on to talk about this definition like this. He said, we do not say we are anxious when, say, we desire a toolbox for Christmas because we don't fear the consequence of not getting a toolbox for Christmas. So we don't say I'm anxious about it, or at least mostly we shouldn't. But we would say differently, we're anxious about our wife not arriving home on time because our desire for her to come home is accompanied by a fear of a car accident and a telephone call from a policeman. So when we talk about being anxious, we need to understand what it means to be anxious and the application of anxiety in our daily lives. I think many of us right now are anxious because of the COVID-19 crisis. And it would be easy for me to say, oh, don't worry, don't worry, don't worry. But the fact of the matter is, there is a a right place for anxiety in our lives. Anxiety is not a, a completely ancillary, separate emotion from the human existence. We are, we are not ancient Gnostics believing that we are, we are uh, raging in this machine that is a body uh, and this body has no effect and the mind can be manipulated to accomplish certain effects. We think that God gave us mind, body, soul, and strength and that as far as the curse is found, each aspect of our being is frustrated because of the sin of our original parents, Adam and Eve, and because of our own sin, our ongoing sin. And one of the ways that we feel sin particularly is the misplacement of emotions like anger or, in this case, anxiety, the misplacement of emotions. One author said this, Paul evidently speaks of his anxiety for all the churches because he intensely desires them to remain faithful to Christ and he fears the consequences of their not being faithful. What consequences, you might ask? Well, just as we might fear the consequence of a wife being in a car accident, And gut-wrenching from that, as we spoke about earlier, the consequences of the churches not remaining in the faith is that they would be, quote, accursed and cut off from Christ, end quote, like the Bible says. Paul knows what he would feel if this happened because it had already happened to some that he loved. And so this is the tone and the placement of his anxiety as recorded in 2 Corinthians 11. Let's zoom out just a little bit further and look at 2 Corinthians 11, verses 28 to 23. 2 Corinthians 11 28 to 23. Again, to repeat, apart from all other things, there is a daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. And then he says, who is weak? Am I not weak? Who is made to fall? And I am not indignant. If I must boast, I will boast of all the things that show my weakness. The God and Father of the Lord Jesus Christ, who is blessed forever, knows I'm not lying. At Damascus, the governor under King Aretas was guarding the city of Damascus in order to seize me. But I was let down in a basket through a window in the wall and escaped his hands. Now this bears some explanation. What Paul is doing here is we're we're zooming out just a little further to look not just what Paul has anxiety about in AD 56, but we're looking at what Paul had anxiety about at the inception of his conversion in maybe AD 36. It's been about 20 years that he's been about the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. So let's zoom out just a little bit because this Apostle Paul was the man who Jesus tasked with writing a supermajority of the New Testament that you might hold in your hand if you're reading from the Bible this morning, the New Testament. Paul was tasked with writing a supermajority of it in the 30 years or so between his conversion 
and his beheading likely at the hands of Emperor Nero in the Roman Empire. So it's worthwhile to know who this man is, and the Apostle Paul appeals to the truthfulness of his own life story, his testimony, in order to rightly place this emotion of anxiety in the context of his life. So I think it's important to just read about Saul's conversion to Paul, Saul being his Hebrew name and Paul being a Greek name, and read about it and consider how it affected the way that he placed his anxiety in his life. And so let's zoom out even further back to the AD 30s to look at his conversion. So you can listen or turn to Acts chapter 9. I'm going to read 31 verses, and I'm going to read it to you in hopes that you'll get a zoomed out view of what 2 Corinthians 11, 32 and 33 is talking about. Remember, he had to escape in a wicker basket. He had to be lowered down from the city wall. He had to escape. And so Paul actually is going to have gone from being the hunter of Christians as Saul to being hunted by his own people, the Jewish people, as Paul. So, so listen to this. I'm just going to read you his biography to zoom out a little bit so you can get a sense of how his anxieties are placed after he's been touched by Jesus. Acts chapter 9, verse 1, on down through verse 31, it says this. But Saul, but Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now, as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him, and falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. The men who were traveling with Paul stood speechless, hearing the voice but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were open, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days he was without sight, and neither ate nor drank. Now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias, and he said, Here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, Rise and go to the street called Straight. And at the house of Judas look for a man of Tarsus named Saul. For behold, he is praying. And he has seen a vision in a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priests to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to Ananias, Go, for Saul, now going to be called Paul, is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and children of Israel. Let's pause for a second and think about the fear that Ananias must have felt that this, this divine calling to go and lay hands on Paul and to be a part of the inception of his gospel ministry to non-Jewish people. Just think about the fear Ananias must have felt and how much faith it must have taken in order to be obedient to this call. It says that he's going to show him, that is Paul, how much he must suffer for the sake of the name of Jesus. So Paul, right away from the inception of his conversion, understood that his salvation was bound up with suffering according to the sovereignty of God. It's very important that we understand that our salvation is bound up with a call to suffer according to the sovereignty of God. It is not that we have the exact same calling of the Apostle Paul, remember, the three missionary journeys that God 
is concerned, this is what Paul's basic point of strength and confidence is. Your calling and my calling won't be precisely like Paul's with regard to the geography or even with regard to the cultural context that he's walking in, which he's writing. So here's what I will say. The Apostle Paul was called upon by the Lord Jesus to start fulfilling a commission that exists in perpetuity today. We still are about taking the gospel of Jesus Christ to people that don't have it yet. And that entails sacrifice and suffering according to the sovereignty of God. Don't believe those that tell you that the gospel received is about prosperity and wellness and health. It is not. And you're going to see it very vividly today in the text that we read that it is not. That is a false gospel, which is no gospel at all. Truly, there are merits to following Christ, no doubt. You must. And truly, there are benefits to following Christ. But to say that the benefit is that we won't face hardships in this life is a complete misunderstanding of what Jesus did at Calvary and of what the chief interpreter of New Testament Christianity did, the Apostle Paul, in his life and witness. Let me finish in Acts chapter 9, and then we'll get back to explaining our main text today, 2 Corinthians. But Acts chapter 9, verse 16. For I will show Paul how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So Ananias departed and entered the house. And laying hands on Paul, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appears to you on the road by which you came, who appeared to you on the road by which you came, has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes, and he regained his sight. Then he rose and was baptized, and taking food, he was strengthened. For some days Paul was with the disciples at Damascus. And immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogue, saying, Here is the Son of God. And all who heard him were amazed and said, Is not this the man who does havoc in Jerusalem and those who called upon his name? And has he not come here for this purpose, to bring them bound before the chief priests? But Paul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. When many days had passed, the Jews plotted to kill Saul, Paul. But their plot became known to them. They were watching the gates day and night in order to kill him. But his disciples took him by night and let him down through an opening in the wall, lowering him in a basket. Does it sound familiar? This is the Apostle Paul who's referencing this. This is recorded in 2 Corinthians 11, 32 and 33, about being lowered in a wall. And that's why we're going back to read this today, to get the context of 2 Corinthians. Now, let me finish Acts chapter 9, verse 26 through 31. And when Paul had come to Jerusalem, he attempted to join the disciples, and they were all afraid of him. They did not believe that he was a disciple. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles and declared to them how on the road to Damascus he had seen the Lord, who spoke to him, and how at Damascus he had preached boldly in the name of Jesus. So he went in and out among them at Jerusalem, preaching boldly in the name of the Lord, and he spoke and disputed against the Hellenists, or the Greeks, that they were seeking to kill him. And when the brothers learned this, they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus. So the church, catch this Sunday, folks, the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up and walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit were multiplied. Listen to verse 31 in this context very, very carefully. It's a summary verse. The ministry is wrapped up in the, in the church. This is anxiety for the churches. It's wrapped up in the church. And the church, when it has peace and is being built up, is indeed blessed internally by the outworking 
Spirit and doing well. This is Paul's great concern because it was Jesus's great concern. You say, well, how do you get there, Pastor Matt? How do you get to the, po- the point that you say because it was Paul's great concern, it was Jesus's great concern? Well, I get there because of Acts chapter 9. Remember what Paul was doing before he saw Jesus and got converted. He was rounding up Christians and persecuting them, right? You remember this? And this is how Jesus describes himself to Paul and the situation to Paul at Paul's conversion. Acts chapter 9, verse 4. Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Well, by the events of Acts chapter 9, Jesus has already ascended into heaven. Nobody's flogging Jesus at this point. We're waiting on his second coming. Well, what does he mean when he uses this kind of pronoun, me? He goes on to say this. Jesus says to him in that conversion experience, and this is counted here in the conversion experience of Saul. He says, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. Paul's not evidently persecuting Jesus. Who is he persecuting? He's persecuting the church of Jesus. And so you need to understand that any move against the people of God as he gathered out here is considered a move against Jesus. Jesus says, why do you persecute me? Because he considers persecution against his church as persecution against him. How's that for empathy? That's how Jesus feels about you, church. He feels a move against him. A move against you is a move against him. That's powerful. Paul is only taking his cue from the Lord Jesus. And he's entirely bothered when he might waver on the edge of not taking his cues from the Lord Jesus. Fast forward to 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 16, to understand what I'm trying to get at in, in context here. Listen, listen to how he, he talks about the, the desperate measure he's having to take to try to, to take care of the church that's sometimes wavering. Listen to 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 16, and we'll read down through verse 22. Paul is so pastorally concerned, and we're zooming in now a little closer in AD 56, where Paul is now going to respond to the attacks levied against him as a leader in the church. These desperate times call for desperate measures, and he's trying to get through to the church believers at Corinth, and he's, he's trying to, to help them not succumb to false teachers, to false brothers, to, to pseudo-brothers, and to pseudo-leaders in the church, and this is how he engages desperate times with desperate measures. He enters the, fl- the fray of foolish boasting, and he talks about his background. He talks about his life story. Here's what he says. He says, I repeat, let no one think me foolish, but even if I do, accept me as a fool. In other words, at least accept me, even if it's as a fool. Why? So that I may boast a little. Verse 17. What I'm saying with this boastful confidence, I say not with the Lord's authority, but as a fool. In other words, this is not the way Jesus would want me to go about this, but I'm so desperate for, to have an audience with you that I'm willing to boast a little bit about my resume in a way that I don't believe Jesus would do because I have this deep concern for the church and I want so desperately for you to understand the full orb gospel. I don't want you to be succumbing to false teachers and folks that put the accent in the wrong place. I want you to understand even the leveraging of your emotions toward the cause of Jesus. And so this is this is my interpretation of what he's saying here. He says, I say not with the Lord's authority, but as a fool. Verse 18, since many boast according to the flesh, I too will boast. 
For you gladly bear with fools, being wise yourselves, eh? For you bear if someone makes slaves of you or devours you or takes advantage of you or puts on airs or strikes you in the face. To my shame, I must say, we were too weak for that. But whatever anyone else dares to boast of, I'm speaking as a fool. I dare to boast of that. Are they Hebrews? So am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they offspring of Abraham? So am I. So let's just pump the brakes for just a second and stop there in the middle of his of his soliloquy about his his background, his life story, his his uh, his testimony, his biography, autobiography, however you want to want to say it. Paul had gone from being a hunter of Christians to being hunted. He he has had a a, a change in his life that's attributed to Jesus, and so now. As part of the fruit of that change, he's passionate about the church that Jesus died for, that very thing that Jesus is passionate for. And he, he now having had his own life intervened in by Jesus, wants to share the intervening power of Jesus with other people. And he doesn't just want to share it with them for their conversion. He wants to share it with them for all of their lives. He wants to teach them to obey all that the Lord has commanded. He wants to see them grow up. But there, there are... There are those that don't share the Apostle Paul's vision, and thus Jesus' vision for the local church. And so he is willing to go to bat because of the people that he cares for. He, he, is, he is leveraging his emotion of anxiety because he cares for the church. He's willing to suffer for the people that he loves and cares for, for the people that Jesus loves and cares for. Have you thought about how much energy that the New Testament claims that the Lord and his people give to caring for you as a believer, as the church? Have you considered that lately? The overwhelming evidence of the New Testament is that the Lord cares profoundly for the sufferings of his people. Profoundly. That has to be the takeaway from reading the New Testament from Titus and from the person that wrote over half of the New Testament, the Apostle Paul. That's the same tenor, the same way that Jesus spoke of it. Jesus empathized. He felt personal the pain of his church, and Paul does too. He has anxiety for the churches, and here he is 20 years after his conversion, and he is focusing on, he's focusing on still on the building of the faith of the believers and not tearing it down. And some believe that the Apostle Paul is having to fight both the, the, the sign-mongering of the Jewish people and the demand for wisdom from the Greeks. And I'm picking up on a, some verses from 1 Corinthians 1 here indirectly. But the Jews demanded a sign and the Greeks demanded wisdom. And Paul says that cross of Christ is enough. It changed the wisdom of the wise. But that is kind of in view here. On the one hand, he leads into this, this uh, explanation of where he comes from, this, this autobiography, his life story, his testimony. He leans into it by saying, I've got the Hebrew resume. I, I was trained rabbinically. I got, I've got all that. I am a child of Abraham, too. And then he goes on to explain what he's been through and scholars more learned than I have come to the conclusion that what I'm about to read to you in verses 23 and following is a, a kind of a way of uh, packaging his story like Caesar Augustus did when he wrote his own eulogy prior to AD 
And so Augustus wrote his own eulogy about him as a divine emperor and, and really to fluff himself up in pride. And, and a lot of scholars think that what the Apostle Paul is doing here is kind of, kind of gauging his comments like Augustus did and comparing the false brothers and their resume statements to Augustus and then totally differently contrasting his own story from Augustus in this one main way. He's saying, you are like Augustus in that you brag on yourself and you don't see weakness as a strength. I am like Jesus in that I brag on him and you and I see the weakness and the sufferings that I have as a strength to my story. Listen to how he talks about his weaknesses. It's profound. He talks about his weaknesses like this, verse 23 and following. Are they servants of Christ? I'm a better one. I'm talking like a madman with far greater labors, far more imprisonments, with countless beatings, and often near death. See, look how he talks about his resume. He's, He's bragging on his weaknesses. Five times I received at the hands of the Jews the 40 lashes less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked, a night and a day I was adrift at sea, on frequent journeys, in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and hardship, through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. So this is his... needs to be on suffering and sacrifice in order to fulfill the cause of Christ rather than all of a sudden becoming too good to suffer, too good to face godly anxiety. When we zoom in a little more here in these verses 23 to 27, we can ask ourselves, like Paul, some diagnostic questions. Have you ever been whipped? Ever been lost? Ever been on a long journey? Ever been on a boat in a river when a storm blew up unexpectedly? Have you ever been robbed at knife point? Have you ever been mistreated by your own people, by your own tribe? You ever ran into false brothers that posed as true brothers? Have you ever had to hide, but you didn't have any place to, whether urban or rural, land or sea? Have you ever been tired from a sleepless night or many sleepless nights? If you've ever had a kid, you've probably experienced that, right? Fatigue makes cowards of us all. Paul says he had sleepless nights for the cause of gospel Ministry. Have you ever been thirsty enough that the first drink trickled down your esophagus? Like you felt every twist and turn of that refreshment making its way down. Have you ever gone long enough without food to long for it? Miss it? To be hungry? Have you ever been outside in the winter without proper attire? Been cold? You'd spend your last dollar for a coat if you were really, really cold, wouldn't you? Pride withers in weakness. Pride withers in weakness. When money can't buy a commodity, what good is our money? That's why Jesus says you can't serve both God and money. We must make a choice between the two. To this point, Paul had escaped all these calamities, but he could describe them because he could taste them in his mind's eye. He palpably knew of these sufferings. The accent is on purposeful sufferings. He sees this background of his, this story is him, as evidence to the faithfulness 
of Christ in his life. And he contrasts it with his naysayers that are filled with braggadocia. They're disguised and deceitful workmen, 2 Corinthians 11, 1 to 15 describes. Those who had long ago crept into the church at Corinth to try to undermine gospel work in it. Counterintuitively, Paul, as we'll see next week as well, is putting the accent of his resume on his weakness. Because the Lord says that when we are weak, that's when he's strong. I wonder if you've thought of it that way. I wonder if you've thought of it, weakness that is, as part of the way that God shows his might. I don't have a great illustration for this. I have more of a generalization. But in my own Christian life, I have found from time to time that I can most directly attest to Jesus' work in my life when I feel the least capable, qualified, the most, the most unrested to do his work. I can think of times in my life where the Lord showed himself mighty when I felt like I absolutely had nothing to give. It was the sermon that people responded to that I felt ill-prepared to give. It was the visit that I did on two or three hours of sleep, grieved and lacking faith where God chose to convert a human soul. It's the lessons that God teaches in my home to my children when I feel myself like I'm failing as a parent. It's when we acknowledge our weaknesses in faith, that somehow in the midst of that, that God is proved to be strong. This is the power of Christ in us. He that is in us is greater than he that is in the world. For Christ's sake, when you are weak, then you are strong. And as we zoom back out just a little bit more, we see then how the Apostle Paul can reacclimate us to where anxiety's accent should be placed after we've been on a long journey away and diverted by others from where we should be. So listen to verse 28 afresh. It's after all these dangers that he describes that he's been through for the cause of the gospel, after he has bragged on his resume of weakness, after he has bragged on his resume of having been beaten and stoned and shipwrecked and tired and hungry and thirsty, he then says this, almost as a crescendo. Apart from all those things that, that I've been pressured by, lost at sea, in storms, all those things, there's the, the daily pressure. Every single day I feel this pressure for the churches. It just fascinates me, really. And I hope it does you as well this morning. He feels this, this pressure, this anxiety, and I think rightly placed, for the churches. He says in verse 29, who is weak? Am I not also weak? Who is made to fall? Am I not angry, indignant? In other words, when, when these false brothers make you fall from the focus of your faith, am I not ticked off? The emotion of anger here, the emotion of anxiety, needing to be rightly placed from time to time because of our fallen human condition, but nevertheless, an emotion that God has granted us. It's been granted to us by God himself. <clears throat> Excuse me. So I want to conclude. Does the church health stress you out? Do you ever get anxiety about the well-being of your brothers and sisters in Christ? Are you connected enough with the heartbeat of a church to even be able to discern a move against her as a move against Jesus? Is it time for you to, 
to refocus yourself on God's people as an act of worship to Jesus Christ himself, that you would be passionate and willing to suffer for the very same thing that Jesus himself is passionate and willing to suffer for. In this age of the church, as we have known of the ascension of Jesus, and as we wait the return of Jesus, Jesus' second coming, will you refocus your life on the faithfulness to that which Jesus has called you to be faithful to? Now, yours won't look just like the Apostle Paul, to be sure. But yours will be a sense of the church being far more important to biblical Christianity than what you previously made it out to be. I know that's the truth for me. It's likely the truth for you as well. This anxiety for the churches, this concern for the church, it really starts with a concern for just one church member, just one believer in a local church. Jesus cares for every single person. He cares for you, and he cares for your soul. Have you trusted Jesus as your Lord and Savior? It's not likely to look like the Apostle Paul's where you're on a road by foot to Damascus to round up true believers to kill them, and Jesus meets you in kind of like a, an experience, a very unusual experience. You respond to that, and there's an Ananias figure that thinks that you might be suspect, but then gets word from God you're not. It's probably not going to look just like that, <clears throat> excuse me, but it'll be no less miraculous because when you receive the gospel of Jesus Christ, your orientation, your worldview changes from that which you want for yourself to that which Jesus wants for you. And your story gets wrapped up in his. And it is one of the most blessed deferrals, deferences that you'll ever experience. It is because your life now all of a sudden doesn't have to be the thing that you, you eke out meaning in. Because his story is plenty compelling enough to undergird yours. You get to draft in behind Jesus. That is a beautiful orientation. It's a wonderful view of the world. It's a great place to be so that we can end our discussion today at the place we started, a rightly placed anxiety. There's plenty of wrongly placed anxieties. We know of them, worldly concerns, devoid of current concern for Jesus and his church. But this morning, I believe with this respite that we have because of the crisis, I believe we have an opportunity based on the clear teaching of the text that we've read today to reorient ourselves and to capture our story as part of Christ's story, who died for you and loved you so much. Won't you accept him today and tell us about it? We'd love to hear it. And we're going to, as believers now, attempt to worship the Lord by singing songs together again with Pastor Kurt and Colleen um, that express this faith in Christ.